0: This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.
1: Hi, Melody. Hey, <laughs> so, long time no see. Long time no see, <laughs> like a few minutes ago. Yeah. And we had the pleasure to meet on, over the weekend. And we are both in our homes and we're also in our little cafe area that we're creating to have an intimate conversation, I'm hoping, in the midst of however many people are tuning in. But um, I'm appreciating um, a sense of immediacy with you already. Mm, Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to uh, engaging you in, your, in a conversation that this is, your book is such an amazing starting point for what, what we're sitting with, what's troubling our world right now, and it's affecting all of us. So what incredible timing for this medicine <laughs> that you have gathered <laughs> right for, for right now.
2: Yeah. I always say, I say in the book that the beloved's timing is better than mine and consistently has proven to be better than mine, but only in retrospect, do you see that? So I don't see that right now, but come back to me in a year five. We'll see. Uh,
1: uh, Maybe by the end of this conversation, we'll make some connections with that. So just in getting us started, I wanted to just say a few things. Um, Well, about what I, what, one of the things that we talked about in our pre-conversation, I asked you what would be meaning, might be meaningful to you, um, as a question that I could ask you during this time together. And you, and you said it was really wanting to hear what's meaningful to your readers. Um, and I really took that to heart and I love the question because it's also an invitation to connect with you, to connect my experience with your experience. And, um. I said right to you right before we got on this call, uh, this call, this cafe, this conversation was the end of your book felt like the call for the beginning. You know, there's that circularity about it because it's so rooted in your your history, um, the place where all of the parts of you, past, present and future come together um, and the wisdom of your ancestors. And it's a call, I think, for me as a reader or for any reader to situate this wisdom in our own traditions and our own teachings. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm inviting that into the conversation.
2: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, thank you. And uh,
1: maybe that's also something to say to the folks that are listening, at, that as, as you all are listening and watching us, to be thinking about how does this connect for you with your own traditions? Um, it really feels like the heart and soul of what What's going on? So the other thing—it's the only part of this that feels a little bit structured—is that I wanted to start by um, sort of Im- imbuing the spirit of these of, of these prescriptions into this time with everyone who's who's tuning in by reading um, reading a poem that is attributed to Rumi, and I'm being very careful here because yeah. Melody and I spoke about this beforehand. It's attributed to Rumi, but there's some question as to whether it was actually written by Rumi or it's apocryphal, but we do know it's in English and it's in Farsi and it certainly embodies the spirit of Rumi. So as I read it, I'm gonna just invite everyone who's on this call to arrive. Sometimes being on Zoom, we're sort of a little bit outside of our own bodies. So just like getting feeling into your own body and also feeling this incredible connection outside of space and time with each other, because again, actually Zoom allows us to be in community without actually being physically co-located. And I'm going to read this poem for us. Only breath, as translated by Colman Barks, not Christian or Jew or Muslim, not Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi or Zen, not any religion or cultural system, I'm not from the east or the west, not out of the ocean or up from the ground, not natural or ethereal, not composed of elements at all. I do not exist. I'm not an entity in this world or in the next, did not descend from Adam and Eve or any origin story. My place is placeless, a trace of the traceless, neither body or soul. I belong to the beloved, have seen the two worlds as one, and that one call to and know first, last, outer, inner, only that breath, breathing human being. So with that, how does this inform, in a nutshell, this book that you've created, knowing that most of the folks here in the call probably haven't read it yet.
2: Sure. Um, just to give you a sense of the book itself, I, I would yeah. say each this book is not a collection of just translations of Rumi's work. There are translations in each chapter, but the, the chapters are different diagnoses. I call them diagnoses, uh, but they're basic human emotions, from wanting to depression to fear to anger to disappointment. Uh, part of the human condition, right? So each chapter is a different diagnosis and a different prescription or se- series of prescriptions, um, focusing on one which to me was seemed to be the prescription that I gleaned uh, from Rumi's work, and not just from Rumi's work, from my father's interpretation of Rumi's work for me. Um, he is very much a Rumi addict, uh, and like most children of addicts, I grew up resenting the object of my father's addiction. Uh, being me, Uh And it wasn't until later in my life that I actually came to uh, his work uh, through a series of events I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> <laughs> but effectively losing my mind um, and opening my heart, uh, waking up to intuition and shutting down intellect. Uh and when that happens, suddenly this poetry made sense to me that my father had been reciting to me my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forget now what the original question was, but I was just giving Exactly that. <laughs> it was just exactly about how? realizing that most
1: people won't have read the book. So yeah. in a nutshell, what are you in what's the pathway that you're opening up to introduce yeah. us to? So the first thing that catches my attention is the well an idea um uh, the idea about sanity some ideas about what does sanity mean yeah um and the fact that your father c- called you in and brought you in to Rumi as a healing balm mm.
0: as a wisdom
1: and as a as someone who's worked with, with the mental health system in a, a kind of against the dominant mental health system, my entire adult life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and because I'm in the expressive arts therapy world in particular, um, I'm really interested and curious to hear, hear how you would compare the medicine of Rumi with the medicine of um, the more conventional, what, what we, what we actually formally name as medicine within right. the health field.
2: Uh, so my father is a physician, uh, and the reason I call it the Rumi prescription is because he actually writes these down as prescriptions mm-hmm. for me. Um, but the in terms of the mental health system here and in so many other places around the world, it's centered on dehumanization, um, whereas Rumi is centered on spiritualization. Like these couldn't even be farther apart from each other. Like Rumi says, we're not human; we're spirit. Like we're beyond, there is no self. The self is all connected, is one, right? Our, the system says, oh, you want a self? We'll give you even less than that. <laughs> the system is beyond dehumanizing. And for me, the immediate recognition of that was being hospitalized and having acute mania within 24 hours of a period of having a beautiful, beautiful mystical experience. Um, like I, I've had two mystical experiences in my life. This was the second. It was far more intense than the first, and it was the first had no damaging side effects. The second had a lot, uh, which included acute mania and psychosis. I believe I am so grateful to the medicine that that brought me out of mania. I'm so grateful for antipsychotics, um, specifically because I, I that is a huge part of my treatment, not daily. Uh, Very rarely do I take them, but when I need to take an antipsychotic, thank God that those are available to me. I do see them often overused. Um, There was a year, several years back, where one of these antipsychotics was like the best selling drug uh, in the country, uh, which is crazy, because it's meant to treat like a whole separate, like really serious kind of crazy, uh, and we were giving it to everyone. Uh, So anyway, the the mental health system in terms of how it treats that, uh, putting me in isolation, literally putting me in isolation is a treatment for mania. Uh, And and every time I say that, I always also have to say here in the United States, we live in a country where we use, you can call it isolation, seclusion, solitary confinement is what I call it. Uh, We use it more than any other country on the planet. We use it for treatment and for punishment. It works for neither. In fact, it's counterproductive. It induces symptoms of mental illness in people who Mm -hmm. don't already have it. And I know, Shoshana, based on your work, you know all of this already. Um, Anybody who studies this for just a tiny amount of time knows this. Mm -hmm. Why our system can't fix it, I have no idea. Um, But that isolation is very much the opposite of what Rumi teaches, is the way that you bring your soul back, the way you bring it, you wake up. It's not that anything is gone or that you're missing anything, but the way that you wake up to the, to the gold, the beauty, the love, the divine within yourself is not through isolation, but through community, right? Reconnecting. Um, and what we do to people in mental health crises is we disconnect them. And that is a beautiful way to make them sicker. Uh, And and that certainly happened to me, and not just that, to traumatize them, which is why I'm a huge, and I know you are as well, a huge fan of trauma-informed care,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. what we call culturally competent care, which Mm -hmm. honestly to me is just, listen, I I don't expect my mental health provider to know everything about Islam, but I expect when I say something about Islam that my mental health provider who is not Muslim and doesn't know anything about Islam doesn't say to me, no, no, that's not Islam, which happened to me, you know? Um, just listen. It's, it's really um, not that hard. And I think yeah. the, ins, the human instinct to help is there, but there, there's a hierarchy. And, and when it comes to mental health, it's, it's more worse than it is in the rest of the medical community, I think, uh, because I had a pancreatic tumor. So I spent a lot of time in the hospital for that. And that was deeply dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing wow. compared to the way I was treated in the psychiatric facility. So obviously I have a lot of feelings about that.
1: Quite rightly so. And it just, it makes me think about how little, how little has changed over the years when it comes to the the psychiatric um, end of the mental health profession, that though things may have shifted in terms of psychotherapy and the um, services that are available for folks who are in private practice, when we get to, state mental hospitals, not so much has shifted. In fact, things are pretty similar. Um, and before, when I, 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 when we had our pre-conversation, I also shared with Melody that this why this issue is so important to my heart is because my mother died in a mental, a mental hospital withdrawing from prescribed medications. So this is like my life passion and um, involves, and it's the heart of my activism and my joy in doing the work is this this thread that connects my work with your work, actually. Um, I I keep looking away because I've written all these notes and I'm like, oh, we're not on page thing. <laughs> Something that I wrote exactly about this. I was drawn to some things that you were saying um, in the book about um, some definitions of Rumi talking about madness, right? And mm. the, some of the distinctions that he was making between you know, kind of ecstatic, crazy. There's a craziness that is about the ecstatic experience. And right. you use the term in the book, post-ecstatic. Yeah. <laughs> a few dif- How do you know the difference between post-ecstatic experience and post-traumatic experience?
2: Mm. How do you know? What tells you there's a difference? Um, there, I don't think there's a difference in terms of what they are. I think there's a difference in terms of, how they're expressed and how society accepts them, if exactly. that makes sense. I think... Say a little bit more about that. So the, I think the trauma is... So we see trauma as something negative, right? We don't see it as an opening. Yeah. We, we don't see it as an opportunity. And for me, every time I've been broken, whether it yes. was physically with that pancreatic tumor or psychologically with... Um, still physically, mentally, whatever you want to call it, my brain is still physically part of my body. So whether it was with the pancreatic tumor or whether it was with the bipolar disorder, every time I have broken, I have been able to put myself back together in better and more beautiful ways. Um, and I think, and I write it in the book about a friend of mine who I lost to suicide, who I see as a... Yeah. Yeah, The perfect example of this, because she, she was this wonderful artist on so many levels, and she would put together uh, these gorgeous mosaics as just a reflection of how she, um, her path to recovery. And though we lost her, she was still such a great, and remains such a great example uh, for me, even in her death, an example of, wow, I can get to a place where I feel like I'm recovered, because she was just like me, like she was an advocate, she was a writer, she was an artist, she had this down, she was teaching other people. So I think like in her example, for instance, I saw her as somebody I looked up to, and I realized I was so busy looking up to her that I wasn't looking out for her. And for me, for my readers, when they think like, oh, you have, and I often I'll introduce at events like, oh, she's overcome bipolar disorder, which is bullshit, but um, I live with it. I I didn't need to overcome it. I'm living (laughs) with it. But that idea that like, oh, you've overcome it and then you don't have to continue thinking about it, um, her experience taught me that this is something I'm gonna be managing and dealing with for the rest of my life is both a blessing and a curse. And we live in such a binary society that yes. it's very hard for us to recognize that something can be both right. at the same time. And that goes back to the psychiatric condition of just the clinical experience of having mania and psychosis, which were valid, but also the spiritual experience of having this beautiful mystical experience of f- ecstatic experience of being feeling the connection to every other living thing on the planet mm-hmm. in a way I'd never had before. That was valid too, and the medical community should not have told me it was not valid. they shouldn't have told me that it was garbage, and likewise, the faith community should never have told me, "Don't take your medication, you're just possessed." <laughs> like, both of them are fucked up like I don't want either one of these, and why can't we have both?" And I, again it comes back to our society of living in this binary mm-hmm. of and it, it has a lot to do with gender, it has a lot to do with race and other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that's part of it.
1: Mm. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the cultural aspects of this of, and within the dominant culture of, of this idea of overcoming, that yeah. there is a, some kind of, a, underneath that, there's an idea of a norm, of ways of being that's and so standards so. of normality that we can actually fit ourselves into okay. um, and that we can approximate, who knows what it is, but it seems yeah. to be something to do with the dominant culture. And it seems to be something to do with being able to suppress our emotions um, and look good on the outside. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the undercurrents that I hear in your book is that tension, is hearing that tension between that is the medicine. I keep hearing that I'm supposed to be this way and I keep trying to achieve, trying to achieve, trying to achieve. And it's always elusive. Mm -hmm. And then there's your father's Voice always coming in. Well, you know, here's the medicine, and here's this prescription, and I see you trying that again. But try this one, and take on this one, and and that coming back, tethering back to this deeper wisdom that the medicine is in, is in the obstacle.
2: Mm, which absolutely. also translates
1: into Jewish mysticism, which is sort of my. You know, we also established that we were on these parallel cousin yeah. paths, which is so sweet. And I'm also, I'm thinking about a particular um, per, person who was diagnosed um, as schizophrenic that um, I've had in my life, not in my life. And I remember feeling really concerned that she was talking about these voices that she was hearing. Mm. I'm like, oh my God, is she okay? Is she okay? And then and that's the, that's the mental health system conventional part mm. of me. It's like, is she okay? Is she okay? Mm. She should have been, those voices are dangerous until I became really curious. And I said, Tell me what the voices are saying. Are any of them friendly? Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh yeah, I have these voices. They are so friendly. And they're telling me, you can do it. You can do it. You know, and it's like stepping back and realizing how much we as um mental health workers or healers, or however we want to position ourselves, right. are so much of creating, co-creating either an opening right. to understand how the the um diagnosis itself has the potential for wisdom and how much we are suppressing it because of our own fear. Mm,
2: Yeah. And I, that's why I called these diagnoses because I know all of these things that I talk about, but pride, like that's, you know, but Mm -hmm. you calling like the, the system calling what I have bipolar disorder is as much a diagnosis as pride. To Me, I mean, it's, it's a valid and important diagnosis in terms of how much, like, what kind of treatments I, I might or might not right. pursue. Um, and, and I believe in that part of it, but I also believe there is so much that we do not know about what I call conditions, um, what the medical community still likes to call disorders and illnesses, and I still mess up and call it a disorder and illness because it's been internalized as well sometimes. Uh, But I've grown to see it as a condition, as something that, that, so right before, frequently I get friends calling, saying, I I have a friend of a friend who is dealing with so-and-so, their partner who's in the midst of a manic episode or a crisis or whatever. Uh, We know you've gone through this and you're functional in society. You're not delusional. You're not jumping off buildings. Like, tell us- Tell, can you help us in some way? Um, and I just like right before we, we came on, I just got one of these sort of requests and, and it's a request by someone who like the person we're thinking about is like the most successful person you could ever imagine. And the only reason they need help is because, and like deeply rooted in medicine and the medical community, they need help because there, there's a secret you know like we can't we can't talk about this within our community because there's mm-hmm. fear of losing status of losing position mm-hmm. of losing really valid fears of losing your job losing a lot of things um so how does someone like that get help without being brought yes. down and humiliated yeah. and dehumanized um and i i think there's a way to do it and I, it's the same way of like this what they did to me when i had a pancreatic tumor now no one ever thought to say like what, this is not even like, just don't tell anybody about it. God forbid someone knows you have, you know, a pseudopapillary tumor of the pancreas, you know, <laughs> nobody gave a shit about that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But suddenly when it becomes a secret, that's when you invite shame. Mm-hmm. And and shame is just so damaging to the psyche mm-hmm. and the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, Because God made me this way. And there's a reason I'm like this. And I, it's it's Allows me to do the things that I do the way that I do them, and it allows me to contribute that one unique thing to the world that only I can contribute. And why wouldn't I embrace that? Why wouldn't I celebrate that? Because mainly just because the society I live in refuses to allow me to. And I'm grateful that I was raised by these amazing immigrant Iranian parents who taught me, even though they told me at that moment, be quiet, they had taught me every moment before that. They had said, The world will think less of you because you're a woman, because of the color of your skin, because of your faith. All these bullshit reasons people will have to tell you they think less of you, this will happen to you. They will deeply underestimate you. They are wrong. So because I had that in my head, somebody who had told me before these are bullshit reasons for people to think less of you, they are not valid. When I was in the psychiatric hospital, when I and even when my parents said, be quiet about this, I looked at them and I was like, no, no, this is another one of those reasons. This is no different than me being a woman. This is who I am. And there's no reason for me to be ashamed of it because there's a gift in it. Um, so obviously I feel really strongly about that. And that comes
1: through so strongly um, in your story. It, it's so empowering for me to read it as the daughter of um, a woman who... In some ways, I saw those qualities in her, and this is we look generationally back. That um, at that time, which was, I mean, she passed in 1984, um, but the issues were the same. But I think there's a, another piece in your um, in the book where you talk about, you know, it's in the differences in it's in the differences, it's in the new di- neurodiversity that there's the strength, and I saw that quality in her too. I mean, her outspokenness, her ability to, you know not give a shit in certain situations where other normal people did. If you're already outside of the box, then, you know, there's a certain freedom in that. And there's a certain intergenerational freedom in that. Um, I I had a thread that I want to come back to, and it has to do with, again, another, a a bi-ness and the bicultural part of this, which also Mm -hmm. is something I also identify with. And coming from these super minority communities, you know, where there's a, it's important to, show a certain face to the world and to sh- have a show of pride and to look a certain way and to keep bury your dirty washing in, you know, in the backyard yeah. dangerous, you know, and I hear that. And I personally was just so in, so struck by the power of your sharing. You were describe, you were talking about the, the, when you were speaking to the, the, the Persian ladies, the Iranian, yeah. <laughs> um,
2: she was yeah. honest. Mm-hmm. Shirzans, yeah, Sheer-zans. <laughs> and it means lionesses. Uh, yeah, um, the lionesses, very strong Iranian woman,
1: very strong. Yeah. And you were this strong Iranian American woman speaking your truth as someone who's out and proud, yeah. as bipolar, and the the power of vulnerability. Yeah, <sighs> the power of vulnerability, and not only the power of vulnerability for you as a woman, but in your specific intersections, um, which could, which I imagine could be very frightening. I mean, I know it is because yeah. we, talk, we talk about it in the book. How frightening. Yeah. No,
2: I mean, one of the hardest things. So the first book I wrote was about young Muslim Americans in an effort to fight Islamophobia, um, yeah. specifically, like very overtly. So t- when I decided to write my second book, which is a memoir about having bipolar disorder, I was like, a little nervous about the fact that people are going to say she's Muslim because she's crazy or she's crazy because she's Muslim. And what's been so great about this third book is it's brought me back to both of them in the sense that this is a deeply, um, Islamic philosophy that Rumi is promoting and that philosophy is love. And it's, and it's the kind of, and it, and it's madness. It's this, it's the saying of there, there are two kinds of madness. There is a kind that Rumi promotes and that is the kind that is rooted in love. And that's what makes makes a mystic. And then there's the kind that's rooted in fear. And we're seeing a lot of that. Yes. Um around the world. That this is the kind rooted in fear is in love with borders and walls. Mm-hmm. The kind rooted in love is in love with bridges. Right. Um, Unity and and so the one creates a mystic, one creates a lunatic or a fundamentalist. Ultimately, yes. right? Yes. Um, and these things both come from a kind of madness. So my hope is, if we're going to get crazy, which all of us are at this point, sorry, like we're living in a country, and it's funny because I know other people who have mental health conditions who are like, "Don't call Donald Trump crazy," and I'm like, "No, he's crazy. He's a fundamentalist, and that's that's where he fits." And then there's the other. Side of it, where you can find the mystics, right? Those are the people who will pull us out of it. And I promise you, none of them are politicians. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, they're artists, a lot of them. Not that right. I'm biased.
1: <laughs> so um, you've raised the, the current situation, our, our, you know, what we're challenged by right now in this pandemic. And I just went to the book and um, I'm looking at that chapter on depression that you wrote and the virus when your father um I don't know if you have, if you, if you want me to read it, I can just read it. Um, sure. Yeah. So what page are you on? You are, we are on page 87. Okay. Um, and it's about, it's at the heart of what you're really talking about. You know, can, is there really such a thing as fixing or mm-hmm. is there really just a path to wholeness through the challenges and the having to come back again and again and again and seeing ourselves as those mosaics that keep getting our pieces moved around and yeah. broken and reset into more and more beautiful unexpected ways. And uh, could, would you read it? it would be nice sure. Read yeah. It.
2: Which, which part you want me to start at the top of 87?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: so the poem itself is, um, Hmm. Yeah. So it's the that- poem, yeah. The So uh, this is, I think the, the section where I'm talking about the friend of mine who I'd lost to suicide. Um, and I say, and my dad tells me a poem of where there is treasure, snakes come round. where there are roses, thorns abound, in the grand bazaar of life, joy without sorrow cannot be found. Um, and I say, but how does that help, having just lost my friend to suicide? Sure, you, can have, you can't have good without bad, so what? How does that fix anything? And my father says, it does not fix anything, only it helps you understand, nothing can fix this in this case, losing my friend to suicide, Melody John. And John means uh, dear, but also soul in Farsi. Um, already you know that, but your friend is not lost. You see her again. Now you have to take care of yourself. Listen to Molana, which means our master, and it's what we call Rumi uh, in Iran. He says, reciting Rumi as he once again ignores the fact that I'm trying to cancel our lesson and not expedite it. For a viable, and this is Rumi, for a viable cure, pain is the key. Your injury invites the remedy. In medicine, a cure does not come from nowhere, Ahmad continues. The disease teaches you the cure. Think of the polio vaccine. It comes from the polio virus. And so many vaccines, they work this way. Think of Ebola or smallpox. They can kill all of us. Human being thinks they are so big, so important, but really you ask any physician and they tell you we are nothing compared to one tiny virus. If you want to stop a virus, you must appreciate its genius. Only then can you learn from it. (laughs) I didn't know how prescient that would be. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. How are you holding that now? When you read that back now, how are you, what comes to you in this circle, right? You talk, You started talking earlier about we don't know what the lessons are. You know, yeah. we don't know what got seeded way back when. Are there any any connections that you're making now as you read, read in this moment those words?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the best thing, I think there's so many, so much grief around this. There's so, and this whole chapter that this is from is about grief. Um, and to see that having, having lost so much life, like it's, it's hard to say to anybody who's lost a loved one, like there's a reason for this there, you know, it's, it's very hard to understand that or say that and accept it in any way. Um, but I do think, as a society, there's a big lesson we need to learn in terms of how we treat each other as foreigners, when a virus sees no foreigner, <laughs> there's, there's no foreigner for a virus, there's just a human and, and it will take you and it will come into your cells and replicate, it doesn't care what your background is. Um, despite the fact that people from certain backgrounds are more vulnerable, but that's because of the society we live in and that we've made these people more Mm -hmm. vulnerable because they're marginalized in our Mm -hmm. societies. Um, but reading it now, I, I definitely, I, I mean, I know things happen for a reason. There's a lot I learned from virology in general, uh, during this, um, during the writing of this book and there's a lot of virology that's in the book uh, oddly oddly enough i don't believe in coincidences i'm sure it, it happened for a reason but i won't say that like when i realized my book was being released in the midst of a pandemic that i was like great this is we need this i was not excited when my publicist at penguin was like we're all working from home i was like no please keep working um you when they were like we can't mail your books out to people sorry like all of that, I just thought, or when Amazon was like, we can't mail books for weeks instead of two days, right? We got so used to receiving things as quickly as we needed them. Um, and then we, suddenly there's scarcity, you know? <laughs> but all the lessons that, um, that I learned and keep learning throughout the book keep popping up during this, um, during this experience. And I've needed, and I wrote the book, like all of my books, I write the book that I need Um, And I really needed this uh, earlier in my life. I wrote the book that I needed earlier, but now I'm finding uh, a lot of comfort in it right now. Um, Not because I've reread it, because I haven't, but because my readers keep coming back to me and reminding me. Um, And my dad keeps coming back to me. He's like, well, you said this and you have the wisdom. And ultimately, that's the lesson of this book. Um, it's not a specific piece of wisdom. It's the knowledge that that wisdom is already within you. And you don't need to purchase anything to get it. Right. You don't need to go anywhere to get it. Right. Um, Rumi has a poem where he said, uh, says, why seek pilgrimage at some distant shore when the beloved is right next door? Mm-hmm. Right? Now right. we can find the beloved <laughs> at home, literally. Exactly. At home. I was just
1: thinking like, you know, following this through to its logic, through its logic, yes, this is when your book is being published. Yeah, of course. (laughs) How brilliant is that? How amazing is that? There's nothing to be done. The books Mm -hmm. will arrive when they arrive. And look at us. Look how amazing an opportunity it gave for us to be here in our living rooms yeah. with however many people distributed throughout who even knows where and i have no idea who's here yeah i yeah. know yeah yes yeah. in 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 one location in san francisco we wouldn't be reaching so many people in our conversation
2: yeah across borders right? across borders right that
1: virus thank you not yeah. to thank you virus for your il- for the <laughs> spring, but for bringing us together
2: so and that's, the, that's what trauma you know, does, and that's that exactly. that goes back to your work, I think, because your work yes. is so based in that it that the these crises, these horrible yes. events in our lives are opportunities, yes, and we can see them that way, and there is yes. there are opportunities to reconnect exactly with our own and this notion of you know intergenerational trauma is yes, so. Prevalent, like where we talk about it a lot, and it's totally valid. But I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for intergenerational resilience. My That's parents right. survived that shit, you yes. know. Like I, the fact that yes. they made it here, and there, that I'm still here despite revolution and war and imperialism. Right. We still made it through that, and we're still here. So there's a way of not focusing on the trauma, or at least using the trauma, yes, to to, to bear out that resilience.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, in our program, we have a very strong emphasis on um, collective, what we call co- collective practices. And it's, and it's, I think all of us in our core faculty are from more collectivist kinds of backgrounds. So it's, it's somehow in the DNA of, of, of the we. And it's it's uh, thank goodness because we we need the we in all of this. This is you know this if this wakes us up to the fact that we their individualism is a is a figment of our imagination. Yes, I don't know yeah. what else would you know as you say this this invisible virus it, it will take us all down. It can take yeah. us all down, and yes, it affects us in different ways. And. According to our social positions that pre-existed this and it's really it
2: can wake us all up
1: too And it can wake us all up and The other connection I made with this with the idea of the prescriptions, which I love that it's you know Ruby's prescriptions is there's there's a trend that's um, I think originally originated out of the UK where I'm originally from of um, uh, Social pre- art on prescription now mm-hmm. that's coming out Oh of, really uh, yes uh, and it 's funded and it 's happening that people the doctors are giving arts and social prescriptions instead of medications, oh, or in addition to medications. Yeah. yeah, and how brilliant that is, and how it felt like your your work is really congruent with that, and the larger culture, the shift towards thinking about arts and what 's life affirming as the prescription rather than the medication, which is about suppression of symptoms, mm-hmm. you know how do we manage symptoms, but allow for joy. How do we Mm. do both of those things? It's not about the buy, it's about the integration.
2: And it's, you know, I think the, for me, the best treatment separate from just love, (laughs) but the best treatment for me has been insight. Um, And that's those calls that I keep getting from people. It's from people who have family members who refuse to acknowledge that they have a condition that needs some sort of treatment. Yeah. whether however they they want to treat it because they've been told this is a condition you'll have for the rest of your life you'll have to take this medication for the rest of your life like they're you're told this stuff as opposed to this is a condition we don't understand at all uh, we don't know what causes it we have no idea why the medications that work and don't work work and don't work they some work a lot better and worse than others. Some actually right. induce the symptoms yes. of the things we're trying to exactly. treat. Yeah. You know. But just be honest with yeah. me. And that, that lack of honesty and that sort of uh, patriarchal attitude of like, we know what this is when you absolutely don't know. And what I love about my current psychiatrist, I actually wrote a piece years ago in the New York Times about him. Uh, where I said, like, what impressed me most about, and this is like a Harvard and Yale educated psychiatrist, and what impressed me most about him in that first meeting was how many times he said, I don't know. (laughs) Because I never heard a psychiatrist say that, right? Uh, And that's all I needed to hear. I didn't need the answer. I just needed him to be like, I don't know, we don't know, you're a human being, let's treat you. Yes,
1: exactly, right. We have a phrase in our program, I don't know, but together we do. Mm. And we've started yeah. us doing it as a mantra for the students that come in to say it to each other oh, when, help me, help me, help me. What's wrong with me? I don't know, but together that's we do. Community. It's something about that collaboration and my real trust that it's the person who's sitting in front of us who has the wisdom if we can hold the space for them to feel into all of that brokenness. And that's where the arts come in because we can externalize, we can put into art, we can put into movement, we can put into poetry, writing, you know, you talk. Yeah. Creative writing <laughs> in psychiatric units, which is yeah. another whole thing I'm not sure we're going to have to have the time for, but I'd yeah. love to talk about it offline. So so to not lose a couple of really things that I really wanted to, to um, get to, one of them was, yes, this, you know, what is it about now? And there's been a movement in the last maybe 10 years towards this sort of anse- reclaiming our ancestors, reclaiming ancestral wisdom, feeling the... Um, Thinness of the conventional health system, that there's really mm-hmm. been a trend towards that. And it's also um, revealed the limitations of the United States homogenization process. Mm-hmm. So we find that there's for a lot of our white students from European backgrounds feel that they have this idea that they don't have a culture. Mm-hmm. So they run off to an ashram. Right, run off to an (laughs) ashram or adopt. You know, it's that line between, where's the line between universalism and particularism? Where's the line between leaning into Rumi's poetry and, you know, I don't know what it
2: might be. Yeah. well, You know, the way I see it, it's whatever brings you close to the beloved, take it. But what I see is Rumi is the fastest path for me because I am... Persian through and through.
1: Um,
2: I'm Muslim. Like there's, I have the same background as he does. I speak the same language. That's where I come from. And if my father were not Persian and not in love with Rumi, then I would have written this book about another mystic, right? Right. Like somebody else, because every culture has them. Um, And my, my point in writing this book was and I say toward the end of it that I'm not writing this book to tell you my story. Yes. I'm writing it to encourage you to tell yours.
1: Yes. Um, Thank you for that. I, that, I was going to re- ask you to read that piece out because that, really, <laughs> that was like the beginning felt like, the end felt like the beginning. Like I love yeah. that you ended with that because it really was that invitation and that sense that it might be painful to unveil the past stories yeah. because, but it's important. Again, it's like, those stories might be ones of finding that your ancestors were at were oppressors. That's true. right. Or at all. But you know, it's what's in the truth. And again, what's in the healing that happens through that journey and digging back beyond that. As and well.
2: owning it, whatever and it is, owning really owning it. it. And, yeah. and if, if you do have oppressors in your history, then figuring that out, figuring yeah. out, I mean, there, there are ways to, um, I, I do think that we carry other generations within yes. us and we work out their traumas within us. Yes, and exactly. if you have old generations that were oppressing others in really harsh ways and you are damaged in one way or another, could it not be that your line needs to pay some reparations? And when you do, that's how you get healing. We just yeah. we don't understand in our society that like antidepressants don't all, always We call antidepressants drugs. Um, but sometimes the best antidepressants are actions um, and the, and the argument is when you're that depressed and there is a deep level of depression where you you can't act um, but I you know the only time that I've ever attempted suicide was after taking an antidepressant that gave me the motivation to act on my emotions. Yeah. I no, depression is not a problem for me because <laughs> without without any motive like I'm not motivated. I won't do anything. <laughs> so the the drug actually induced the thing that it was supposed to prevent. You know, so at the same time there are drugs that have saved me and pulled me out of it. But you you have to use them consciously and thoughtfully and engage in a partnership with yes. someone else as, as an equal as opposed to a patient um, yes. who must be patient. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and not ask questions, you know.
1: Such an important point to remember. And um, I'm involved right now with um, a project through the North American Arts and Health Organization, which is um, a healthcare... Pro- health, health. It's working with healthcare providers. Actually, you might be really interested in hearing about this yeah. um, nationally. And actually, there are international movements as well. But we're currently working on a, a project that's raising money for... Um, helping healthcare professionals who are struggling so much and a lot because of this having to be the experts, having to have it all together, when in fact so many healthcare providers are having to make unethical, ethical decisions that feel unethical, hurting their soul. And there's nowhere to discuss it or talk about it. So what we're trying to do is raise money to uh, create arts-based practices For as medicine for healthcare workers. So this idea of of, um, healthcare workers as artists and as creators. I love that. It's very exciting. And I think it's also, it follows what you're saying. And also the story of your friend who Mm. who you talked about. It seemed like there was so much pain that because she was seen as being so together or yeah. so such a presence for other people, her own pain went unnoticed. And I think that's, this is a moment when we're seeing that, that yeah. frontline folks are the people who are doctors, nurses, janitors, healthcare shoppers, people who are working in shops, oh, are yeah. the people who are getting this disease and they were never credited before. And how do we create, create spaces of
2: health? Mm, and, and the people who are keeping us alive are the people who are making less than minimum wage. Like yes. these are the people who, if you think this has nothing to do with labor, like this right. has everything to do with labor, hopefully this <laughs> will force us to recognize yes. that these are valuable oh people doing valuable work that yes. needs to be compensated right. accordingly. And unless those of us who are purchasing that actually stand up for them, then it's not gonna happen. We really need to acknowledge that these people saved our lives by driving food to our house, by working in the supermarket. These are new
1: conversations that this virus has actually made possible.
0: Yeah.
1: That's interesting. I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I wanted to get to another part of the book that was, that stood out for me. Cause again, we're saying, this is what stood yeah. out for me. And it was about, it's cause I work in a school you know, I'm an educator, I'm in yeah. higher education. And this question, this juxtaposition sometimes between anger, righteous anger, mm-hmm. right. And, you know, social justice and righteous anger yeah. somehow go together. And then there's compassion and love on the other hand. Mm-hmm. And I identified with that both personally in my own journey, you know, my own sort of adolescent rebellious Voice, which can be very uncompassionate and my own evolution. And then seeing that often in my students Mm. Um, and really hearing that in these in, I love that chapter about love and anger. And there's um, a piece that amused me when you talked about being an ally in the queer um, Muslim conference. Yeah. And you talked about meeting your pseudo doppelganger. (laughs) Well, I love the phrase. (laughs) And um, how hard that was. Can you say a little bit
2: about... Yeah, so I was invited to... Yeah, I was invited to this uh, amazing organization. I encourage y'all to look it up. It's called Masjid, the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Um, And I was invited to do this mental health workshop for like two hours, Uh, not knowing that I was the only straight cisgender (laughs) um, person coming with my husband, a straight, white, cisgender man, Um, So sort of invading the space in a way, but I didn't know that that was happening. I just knew that I was invited and I showed up because this is a community that, you know, for my writing, I've received death threats. And the only death threats I've ever received were for this being part of the queer jihad movement, fighting for LGBTQ rights from an Islamic perspective um, and being insistent about that. So I earned my place there, right? Like I, I had earned my place there as an ally. But even still, I was so righteous about my allyship. You know, I thought I was so good at it and I knew what I was talking about. And at the end, there was a woman who looked just like me and came up to me and was like, uh, really unhappy with the ways I use the word crazy, which is the way the dictionary uses it. But she, she was... Unhappy with that, she was unhappy with all these other things. And as she was talking, I just noticed that physically I was distancing myself from her. Uh, and she looked so much like me that it was so obvious. That and the thing that was, and I started getting so angry. And was I? And it wasn't that I was angry, and I, I not that I showed it to her, um, but within I was just seething. Um, and it was all ego. I realized that this is there's no righteousness to any of this anger right now. Because she's entitled to the space to herself. She's entitled to feel like I'm invading it because I am. She's entitled to have her opinions about what I have to say. And I would defend them on, on any other day if I weren't me standing here. You know what I mean? But my ego is like getting in the way of all of this. And my father's take and Rumi's take is all of uh, anger, so much of anger. I don't buy that all of it because I'm, I'm still a big fan of Audrey Lorde. I think anger has uses, but... Um, I also think that so much of our anger is from ego. We're angry not because um, the right thing is not happening, but because the thing we want is not happening. The thing we think is right is not happening. And I see that in the lack of conversation across political parties uh, in this country right now, especially.
1: Yes. She also struck me as your doppelganger. I don't know if you meant, maybe you did mean this in this way, in I, I hear in the book you you struggling with your own righteous anger, right? And your own yeah. experiments in leaning into Rumi wisdom. Like you you describe, <laughs> you know, oh, you don't look like a Muslim, that, <laughs> that whole part. And, you know, you, you, back, you checking yourself and like, well, I'm not going to go into what my normal rap would be around this. So I was also thinking about her as your doppelganger and like mirroring in back, sense. you know, her righteous indignation at you. That was, also, that's also part of ego. Right? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't intend to write it like that, but I'm glad that you got it. I'm glad it showed up. <laughs> that's how I kind of read it.
1: Yeah. Um, it reminded me of a time when I was in Boston and um, I was out with who I thought was a friend who, a, a male. I friend. thought this is going to go into somewhere great. Who I thought he was, was a somewhere great. I thought he was inviting me out for, a, wanted to get to know me. I met him at a conference, he was a mental mm-hmm. health worker and we were hanging out. And then he asked me out for a date. I'm like, but I have a girlfriend. And he said, you don't look like a lesbian. <laughs> and I was not as evolved as you. <laughs> At the time, I said, "Tim, really? I thought you were gay," <laughs> which wasn't really true. <laughs> which wasn't, but, uh, but you know, it got. I, I was not in my higher power at that moment, but.
2: <laughs> I love it.
1: <laughs> so we just have. Oh, we have five. I think we have five minutes. Um, a breath. Yeah. A breath let's see let's what's where are we now where are we now and where are we in the relation to the mystery in this moment I'm saying the mystery Mm. in terms of what that was one of the things we wanted to invite in in terms of Rumi where just let it let it unfold you know where Mm. are we now where's this conversation taken us
2: my um During all of this, while we were talking, other things are happening around me. My cat is Uh sitting right here. (laughs) (laughs) My husband is over there. Our neighbor knocked on the door recently to be like, it is pouring rain down downstairs and your car, your passenger window is open. You may want
1: to pull it up. You've managed that all incredibly well.
2: Oh, yeah. All of that happening. But the, I just, I'm, you ask in this moment. In this moment, I'm thinking like, I can't believe I left the window down in the middle of a storm. Um, I don't know. Something about leaving the window down in the middle of a storm is striking me. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what's hitting me right now. And no damage was done. My husband went and pulled it up and it was okay. It wasn't that. Sitting bad. through it. Yeah.
1: Sitting through, through it. it. And it didn't, yeah. it really didn't seem from the outside like anything was, any <laughs> storm was hitting.
2: Well, thank God for the neighbor because it would have been <laughs> open all night, right? So the beloved is right next door and comes upstairs and knocks sometimes to say, hey, you were kind of dumb when you parked your car today.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it, <laughs> in the because we have a couple of minutes, and I wanted to go back to the uh, the end of your book, which felt like the beginning, um, maybe to um to actually do that, pull out the page that I found um, If I can give you the page, can you read yeah, it Yeah
2: sure absolutely. It is page page two thirty
1: four Mm -hmm. where you're talking about um, trading intellect for intuition from there? Mm
2: -hmm. Sure. So this chapter is about pride and ego. That's the diagnosis here. Trading intellect for intuition by accepting my father's guidance while finding Rumi's prescriptions for myself, filling Rumi's prescriptions for myself and prioritizing love above all else, I am slowly learning to quit reducing myself to my thoughts and achievements to quit comparing myself to others' carefully curated Facebook personas, to quit striving for perfection to the point of creative stagnation, and to quit chronically trusting reason over fate. By returning to my roots, to my parents, to my heart, to the beloved, I have discovered a newfound sense of love and gratitude for where I come from, personally, culturally, and spiritually. Applying that to myself and the world around me by filling Rumi's prescriptions has helped me reduce the wanting insecurity, ego, and ambition that first led me on this journey. In the process, it has also mercifully reignited my creative spark, bringing me back from a madness far more common and insidious than manic depression, back from the trappings of my ego, back from fear and insecurity, back to the joy of creating for its own sacred sake, not my own errant egocentric one. (laughs)
1: That seems like a really great place to leave this.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. I had such a great time. Thank you, too. Me, too.
0: Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.